Today's reading from the Word of God comes from Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen behind me or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Hear the word of the Lord. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here at Anchor Bay Church, and I am so glad and blessed to be worshiping alongside each of you today. It's such a gift to me. Uh, like we do every week before we jump into the sermon, uh, let's just take a moment to quiet ourselves before the Lord, setting aside the distractions that we may have brought in here with us, and ask God to speak to us and to compel us uh, this morning. After a moment, I'll pray. Lord, you are good, and your mercies are new every morning. Lord, speak to us today. Move in our hearts and compel us so that we may know more about you. We love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Friends, have you ever heard the phrase, you can't have your cake and eat it too? Uh, it's a pretty common phrase. I, I know what it means, you know, like I know the gist of it, but for so long I didn't understand, like, 
what it was saying. Like, I didn't understand the words of it, you know? Because I feel like when someone's like, hey, do you want to have some cake? I eat that cake, right? Like, having cake and eating cake is kind of the same thing. But it wasn't until uh, probably embarrassingly recently that someone explained it to me, and I kind of understood more nuance of, of actually the words, right? You can't have your cake as in you can't possess the cake. You can't keep the cake, hold on to the cake, and also eat the cake, right? Because then the cake would be gone. You can't keep the cake and you can't eat the cake at the same time. Those two things can't coexist together. They don't go together. I mean, basically the saying is you can't have it both ways, right? Have one or the other. And I kept thinking about this phrase as I prepped for this sermon because I think at the end of the day, Jonah, in our passage, was trying to have his cake and eat it too. He wanted two things that just cannot go together. And so as we go through the passage today, my hope is that we start to see that a little bit. We might feel compelled as to how we might be wanting to have our cake and eat it too in the same way that Jonah did. Because today we are continuing our sermon series, Mosaic, Many Voices of God's Unified Story. One really neat thing about our church is that we have lots of people with ministry experience. We have people who uh, used to be uh, pastors or former pastors or retired pastors or ministers or missionaries, people who went to seminary, people who are leaders in Christian organizations. We have lots of people that God has gifted in ministry. And so for this sermon series, we'll be hearing from some of those people in our congregation each Sunday. When each person agreed to preach, we said, you know, you can pick whatever you want to preach about. Maybe it's their favorite sermon they've ever preached, or they can write a new sermon about something they're passionate about or something compelling in Scripture. Uh, But unfortunately for all of you, this Sunday was the one Sunday that none of those wonderful people were available. So I'm preaching to you today. You are stuck with me. Uh, But as I considered what I wanted to preach about, I kept thinking about uh, when I was in seminary, I wrote this big research paper about Jonah chapter 4, and it was one of my favorite papers I ever wrote, which is a really nerdy thing to say, but I stand by it. When I turned in this paper, my wonderful wife Kayla and I went out to dinner to celebrate. She said, uh, what is one really cool thing that you learned in writing this paper? That was a bad decision, Kayla. About two hours later, I finished talking about just like one of the things I picked that I thought were really cool. Uh, Might not have been the fun date night she had been expecting, but it made me kind of think, I mean, I should tuck that away for a sermon someday. And here we are at someday. (laughs) So I'm excited to preach to all of you uh, about Jonah. I think it's a super fun passage, a really unique passage. I'm not just going to read my uh, research paper to all of you. That would be pretty boring. Uh, I did trim a lot of stuff that I thought was super cool. So if you want to talk about uh, Hebrew grammar and fun stuff like that, I'd be happy to chat with you about it uh, after the service. But if you grew up in the church or if you've been coming to the church for a few years, chances are you might have heard the story of Jonah and the whale. And it's a great story, right? Jonah is thrown overboard during a storm. The Lord sends a giant fish to swallow Jonah up. Jonah hangs out inside of a whale for a couple days, and then God makes the fish spit Jonah up onto dry land. It's a wild story. And it's no wonder that when we think of Jonah, we probably think of the giant fish, right? It's a fantastic image. But I don't think that it's the point of the book of Jonah. I don't think the reason that Jonah was written was to tell us the story of the big fish. I think that it was written to tell us the story of chapter 4, the last chapter of the book that Shilpa just read for us. 
So today, I wanted to share with you something that I found really interesting as I studied Jonah, something that I thought was really compelling in my own life, and I think it helps us understand the whole point of the story much better. So, because Jonah is only four short chapters, and because our passage starts with Jonah already feeling some pretty big feelings, let's quickly just walk through what has happened before this, all right? This will be a really speedy overview. I know I'm going to be jumping over a lot of stuff, but we're just trying to get up to speed on what has happened leading up to our passage. Jonah chapter 1, it does not dilly-dally. It jumps right into the action. God calls a man named Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh to preach and to prophesy to them. Most, but not all, of the prophets in the Bible are prophesying to the Israelites and to those people that follow God, but Jonah isn't called to talk to his own people. He is called to another group of people in the city of Nineveh. So Jonah, being wise and thoughtful, said, sure thing, God, sounds good, just going to take, take care of something real quick, and then he immediately tries to skip town. He went to the next town over, he hopped on a boat, and he tried to set sail for a city called Tarshish. Now, uh, Nineveh was to the east of where Jonah was. I think we have a map right here. You can see Nineveh is just like right next to Joppa. And uh, Jonah tried to hop on a boat to Tarshish, uh, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. That would be like if God called me to go to Canada, just like a quick five-hour drive to Montreal, and I hopped on a plane to Argentina. I'm like, get me out of here. I am going the opposite direction. Jonah wanted nothing to do with preaching to the Ninevites, so he tried to run away instead. But why? Right? Like, why is Jonah so opposed to going to the Ninevites? He's a prophet. Well, to put it simply, the Ninevites were terrifyingly wicked, like horribly wicked people. During some recent archaeological digs of the ancient Ninevite area, recent historians have found, have found written documents that boast of horrifying, terribly cruel things that they did to the people that they captured. They found stone reliefs and artistic recreations of their armies torturing prisoners. They found records of kings having uh, people paraded through the streets and flogged and stoned to death with citizens jumping in for part of the fun. So not only did the Ninevites do these horrible things, but they wrote them down. They made artwork of it. They made it a celebrated part of their culture. They were heinous, wicked, horrible people. And the city of Nineveh was part of the larger Assyrian Empire, an empire that had attacked and oppressed and tried to destroy Israel, Jonah's people, many times. So the Ninevites weren't just a random group of people to Jonah, just on some random city. It was personal. These people were horrible. They had oppressed and terrorized Jonah and his people and many other people. So Jonah runs. Of course he runs. Why wouldn't he run? I would run. He didn't want anything to do with these horrible people. So he sets out to Tarshish to run from God. And wouldn't you know it, trying to run from an all-knowing, all-powerful God didn't work out like he had planned. A storm came that was so ferocious that it threatened to break apart the entire boat. And when Jonah tells the sailors that are piloting the ship that he's running from God, they throw him overboard. 
And then God sends a giant fish to come and swallow Jonah up. And then all of chapter 2 is Jonah praying while inside the fish, kind of reflecting on his life decisions, as I would imagine we would all probably do if we were stuck in a fish for three days. And finally, the fish spits Jonah out onto dry land, and chapter 3 of Jonah picks up right where we left off. The Lord says, now, where were we? Ah, Nineveh, that's right. Go to Nineveh and preach. So Jonah goes to Nineveh and he prophesies. And one thing that's kind of unique about the book of Jonah among the prophetic books in the Bible is that while other prophetic books focus on the actual message that God gave the prophet to preach, the book of Jonah doesn't, like not even a little bit. Jonah goes to Nineveh and says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that's it. That is the whole prophecy. But something crazy happens. The Ninevites believed. Despite a lackluster message from Jonah, God moved in the hearts of the Ninevites and they believed. When the king of Nineveh hears the message, he takes off his royal robes and he starts mourning. And he makes a proclamation to the whole city that everyone should turn to God. And they did. The entire city, this horribly wicked city, they all repented. Everybody fasted, everybody prayed, everybody put on sackcloth and ash, which was a custom for mourning and repenting in the day, even their animals. I mean, the king is like, we are all doing this because this whole place is about to change. We are, we're done living the way that we've been living. We are done with the violence and the evilness and the wickedness and maybe, just maybe, God will have mercy. And God did. Hallelujah. God did. God hears their prayers. God saw their repentance. God extended wonderful mercies to them because that is what God does. And Jonah hated it. Just furious at God. I mean, Jonah didn't even want to go there in the first place. He didn't want to preach to those monsters. He certainly didn't want, him, want them to get off scot-free. Yet here God was just throwing around forgiveness and mercy to anybody, I guess, even to those horrible, horrible people. And that just wasn't right in Jonah's eyes. In the original Hebrew, a more literal translation says, and it was evil to Jonah. It was so wrong that God would do that. He says, I knew it. I knew that you would do this. This is why I didn't want to come here in the first place. This is why I tried to run. I knew that you would show mercy. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God. God, do you have any idea what they've done? Do you have any idea how horrible they are? Oh, no, you're not an angry God, though. No, you're a loving God, and you delight in showing mercy. I knew it. You know, God, just let me die, Jonah says. I'd rather die than live in a world where you do this. Jonah, man, what a pitiful prophet. What a miserable man. But are we like that? As Jonah sits there pouting and yelling at God, it's pretty easy to demonize him. It's pretty easy to look down on this pitiful prophet. But let's be honest with ourselves just for a second. Truly, let's be honest. If we were to see the person or the people who have hurt us, who have said 
horrible or hurtful things to us. The person or people who have betrayed us, who have emotionally or spiritually manipulated us. If we saw them walk into church this morning and raise their hands during our worship songs and say amen when the preacher preaches about forgiveness, would we be happy? Would we celebrate alongside heaven that even one person turned to God? Or would we be like Jonah? How dare they come in here? They shouldn't be here. They don't deserve to be here after what they've done. If our Ninevites walked in here, what would we be like? That over-demanding boss that takes advantage of your kindness? The friend who betrayed your trust? The person who said or did terrible things to you or to your friend, to your sibling, to your partner? For me, if my ex-girlfriend from college who emotionally and uh, spiritually manipulated and abused me, who cheated on me, the person who left me with scars and insecurities that honestly I still wrestle with today, if she walked in here, if those people walked in here today, would we rejoice along with heaven? Or would we be like Jonah? Uh, I know who I would be like. And when Jonah acts like that, God just asks him a simple question. Is it right for you to be angry? Angry that I extended mercy? Now, this is where I really want to dive into some of the more nuanced aspects of this passage. Please humor me as I do look at some of the cool Hebrew stuff in the passage. Because this next section gets a little strange, doesn't it? It kind of feels almost like a parable or like a vibrant illustration or like a metaphor, even though it's part of the narrative, right? God asks Jonah, is it right for you to be angry that I showed mercy? And Jonah answers the question not with words but with actions. Jonah leaves the city. He walks a safe distance away, takes a seat, and he just waits to see what is going to happen to the city because surely, surely God's just been messing around with me and he's going to destroy the city. Surely, right? And when that happens, Jonah wants a good seat to watch it happen. But it is a hot day in the desert after all, so God makes a large leafy plant sprout up to give Jonah some shade and relief, a tender mercy And Jonah is loving it. He's very happy about the plant. 10 out of 10, well done, God. But the next day, God sent a worm to chew through the plant. And the plant died. And the sun rose in the morning. God sent a scorching wind sweeping across the desert. Imagine being uh, at the beach or like in a gravel parking lot and the wind picks up, you know, and you start to feel the sharp like lacerations of sand and dirt and dust hitting your face and skin. Imagine that, but even worse, across a huge burning desert. And God sent a blazing hot sun to beat down on Jonah's head so much that he grew faint. Jonah is exposed to the elements. He has no protection. The plant that gave him shelter and shade is gone, and he has had it. He can't handle it anymore. He'd rather die than live in that misery he was facing. And then we see a sentence that looks oddly familiar. As Jonah sits in the desert, miserable and suffering, God says something. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's almost exactly the same as what God said to Jonah five verses before, right before Jonah left the city. So let's take a moment and let's look at these two verses side by side. Now, uh, while these two verses are almost identical, 
there are a couple of things that are different, two big things that are different. Do you notice them? And I would love if you would call out, if you see it, if something stands out to you. About the plant, exactly. Verse 4, is it right for you to be angry? Verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now, there's one more. Replied, Kenny, I'm so glad you said that because this was one of the things I cut from my uh, exegesis paper. That's actually the same word. That wasn't what I was looking for. But if you want to talk about uh, inferred versus consecutive replies in Hebrew literature, I would love to talk with you about it. Um, it's a good answer, but not quite what I was looking for. Um, the names of God, excellent. Verse 4, we see, but the Lord. And verse 9, we see, but God. So the question is, why, right? I mean, if you're an author and you want to repeat yourself and you're repeating a line that's about that far above what you're writing, you probably wouldn't mess it up, right? You'd probably be able to see it and repeat it perfectly. So if there's a change, there's probably a reason. So why? So let's start by talking about the two different names for God because I think this small distinction is actually really important in us understanding the book of Jonah as a whole. So for those of us reading this in English, this may not seem like a big deal, right? Lord and God are two names that we use for God pretty interchangeably. We might not even notice when one is used instead of the other. In fact, as I wrote that line in my sermon, I went back and I looked at the, you know, what I'd written already, and I had used both Lord and God many times, and I have no recollection of switching between them. It's, they're pretty interchangeable in English. But in, the, in uh, Hebrew, the original language that the Old Testament was written in, it's not like the same word was used there, and then the English translators were like, nah, I don't know, let's switch it up for fun, right? Those are two separate words in Hebrew. So when we see the word Lord in verse 4, what Hebrew word was being used? Yahweh. Now, maybe you've heard this name before. For the Israelites, the name Yahweh was and still is a highly significant, important, holy name for God. It was deeply personal and intimate. The name Yahweh was given to Moses in Exodus 3.14. When, when God called Moses to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. When Moses asked God, when Pharaoh and the Israelites asked me, who sent me? What should I tell them? God said, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. It's that passage where we get the name Yahweh. And ever since that moment, the Israelites had called God Yahweh. It's a name that speaks of God's character, God's faithfulness, God's mercy, that name is a reminder that God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. It's a reminder that God will do anything to save his people. A reminder that, God, it, that the God who led Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob, pillars of faith in the Israelites' community, that is the same God that they are calling on when they call out Yahweh. It's a personal name only for God's people, for people who follow God. A name that shows God to be a personal, intimate, tender, merciful, relational, redemptive God. The English language doesn't have an exact translation of the word Yahweh, since, as I just explained, it's a pretty nuanced meaning. 
So in our Old Testaments, in English, we see it translated as Lord in all capitals. If you see Lord in all caps, the Hebrew word used for it was Yahweh. In fact, the name Yahweh was so holy that the Israelites wouldn't even say it out loud unless uh, they were in the temple worshiping. When I was learning Hebrew in seminary, we were taught to say the word Adonai when we were reading out loud and came across the name Yahweh. Adonai, which means Lord a little more directly. That's how meaningful the name Yahweh was. And that's the, that, that's the Hebrew word used in verse 4 when we see the Lord. To Jonah, God is Yahweh, the Savior of his people, the Redeemer God, the Merciful God. But the word used for God in verse 9 is a different word in the original Hebrew. It's the word Elohim. And Elohim is a Hebrew word that simply means God. It's a generic uh, word for God, just like our English word for God can mean both God, like the God that we worship, but also God with a, like a lowercase g. That's not to say that Elohim is a bad name for God. It's just a little more generic. Both Yahweh and Elohim are wonderful, excellent names for God, just like an English Lord and God are both wonderful, excellent names for God. It's just that Yahweh carries a little bit more of an intimate meaning than Elohim. It's like how all of you here call me Ethan, like most people do. That's how I introduce myself. That's my name. But my family calls me Eth, E-T-H. My parents, my aunts and uncles, my siblings, my cousins, they all call me Eth. It's a nickname that I've had since I was little. And it's more intimate than Ethan because it speaks of a deeper, more personal relationship that I have with those people. But both are still my name. It's just that one has more of an intimate meaning than the other. So while Lord and God may be pretty interchangeable for us in English, that wasn't true for Jonah and the Israelites between the names Yahweh and Elohim. And in verse 9, we see that name change. And while it wouldn't have been immediately obvious to us in English, it would have been very obvious to anyone reading it in Hebrew to the original audience. So why the change? Well, it's especially interesting if we go back and look at the rest of the book of Jonah as a whole, because every time that God and Jonah are interacting, all the way from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to the beginning of chapter 4, the beginning of our passage today, every time God and Jonah interact, it's Yahweh that is used to describe God. You can skim through your Bibles and look right now. Every time you'll see the word LORD in all caps. But when Jonah is preaching to the Ninevites, preaching to those monsters in chapter 3. Jonah uses the name Elohim, not Yahweh, because the Ninevites aren't Israelites. They don't deserve to worship God like Jonah knows God. The special intimate name Yahweh isn't for them, it's for Jonah. It's for the Israelites. Yahweh is their Savior, their intimate friend, their merciful, compassionate God. But even still, God extended mercy to them. God made himself Yahweh to them. God was merciful and compassionate and forgiving. God delighted in redeeming them, and Jonah hated it. Jonah yells at God, I knew you would do this. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. That compassion and mercy isn't for them, it's for me. It's for us, my people. And the Lord says, Yahweh says, is it right for you to be angry? Angry that I am a merciful God. And Jonah said, yes, yes it is. You should have judged them. 
You should have been a wrathful, vengeful, angry God, not a merciful God. And friends, all of the sudden, right after that is where we see the shift in the name usage between God and Jonah. This is the pivotal moment. This is the message at the heart of Jonah. We see the Lord, Yahweh, provide a leafy plant to shade Jonah from the harsh elements. We see the Lord be merciful, and Jonah is so happy about that mercy. And then the name Yahweh disappears. The next day, God, Elohim, provided a worm that destroyed the plant. Then God, Elohim, sent a harsh wind whipping across the desert. The next day, God, Elohim, caused a scorching sun to burn down on Jonah's head. Not Yahweh, Elohim. God had asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry that I am a merciful God? And Jonah said, yes. Jonah didn't want God to be Yahweh, the compassionate, gracious, intimate, merciful God that Jonah had come to know, at least not to the Ninevites. Jonah wanted God to be a God who destroys, a God who has no mercy and no compassion for the lost. So God did just that. The plant that God had given to Jonah as a tender mercy against the elements, God took it away. No more plant, no more mercy. And a harsh wind comes and the sun beats down and there is no mercy to save Jonah. And he's so miserable, he says, it would be better for me to die than to live like this. And so God asks him, is it right for you to be angry? And then we see the second difference about the plant. The plant, which was that tender mercy to Jonah in the desert. Is it right for you to be angry that I took away my mercy? that I didn't have mercy. And Jonah again says yes. Jonah before said, yes, I'm angry that you had mercy. And now Jonah says, I'm angry that you didn't have mercy. Jonah wants his cake and he wants to eat it too. And allegorically, we see this shift in the names uh, between, uh, of God, between God and Jonah, because God almost seems to be saying to Jonah, I was a compassionate and merciful God, abounding in love, and you hated that? You want me to be angry and wrathful and merciless, a God who only punishes and destroys? You don't want me to be Yahweh to sinners? Okay. Then I won't be. I'll be the God that you want me to be. And at the end, when Jonas had a taste of this imagined God that he wants God to be, God asks, is it right for you to be angry that I didn't have mercy? And Jonah, that pitiful prophet, says, yeah. I am so angry that I could die. Jonah loved God's mercy when it was directed at him. And he hated God's mercy when it was directed somewhere else. Jonah wanted to have his cake and eat it too. He wanted two things that just can't go together. He wanted to enjoy God's mercy and he wanted to withhold it from certain people. And in verse 10, The name of God in the original Hebrew switches back immediately. The Lord, Yahweh, says to Jonah, you've been so concerned about this plant, this mercy, even though you did absolutely nothing to make this plant happen, to earn this mercy. So if I extended mercy to you, even though you didn't do anything to deserve it, then why shouldn't I extend it to the Ninevites when they come to me? Why shouldn't I welcome them into the family of God and invite them to call me Yahweh? God took the sins of Nineveh just as God took the sins of Jonah and Israel. 
And friends, I think that's the whole point of the book of Jonah. Unlike the other prophetic books in the Bible, it's not really about the prophecy itself. It's about the prophet and the prophet's heart. It's about Jonah and how he wanted God to be a merciful God only when it pleased Jonah. And God said, that is not who I am because I am Yahweh. I am gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, eager to extend mercy. Now, it's important to note that this story isn't saying that God can set aside parts of his nature, right? Or that Elohim and Yahweh are two separate gods, or that God treats certain people differently than others. In fact, the passage is saying the exact opposite of that. God is telling Jonah, you can't have it both ways. I am a merciful God, and I hate sin and evil and suffering, but to anyone who comes to me, anyone who calls on my name, anyone who repents and chooses to follow me, no matter what they've done or who they've been, I will extend mercy and forgiveness to the ends of the earth for them. Anyone who comes to me can call me Yahweh because they have been welcomed into the family of God. That's true of the kindest people that we know and the worst people that we know, the people that we think might deserve it and the people that we don't think deserve it. You can't have it both ways, Jonah. Because I am God and I am in the business of mercy. And ultimately, friends, we see that love and mercy displayed on the cross when Jesus Christ took it upon himself, the sins of the world. We see it in the empty tomb where Jesus defeated sin and death and shame once and for all. We see it in the gift of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God who will never leave us or abandon us. God is a God of of mercy and love, eager to extend compassion and grace to you and to me and to Jonah and to the Ninevites, and to anyone and everyone. So friends, what about you today? The reason that I, I loved the paper that I wrote about this passage, the reason I wanted to share about it with you is because honestly it brought me face to face with my own theology of mercy. It brought me face to face with how, how do I picture God? What, what kind of God do I want God to be? It was so compelling to me because I realized I was just like Jonah. Because it's easy to become like Jonah, right? It's easy to love God's mercy and forgiveness when it's directed at us, but then turn around and want that mercy withheld from the people who have hurt us. But that's not how God calls us to live. We are called to be merciful, to extend grace, to forgive when we've been wronged, and to rejoice alongside heaven when even one person turns to God. And that can be really hard. Gosh, so hard. Because sometimes even if we know that we shouldn't be like Jonah, we just might not be in a place where we feel like we can forgive and extend mercy. When we've been hurt or betrayed, it can take time to heal and get to that place of forgiveness. We can't change overnight. But God calls us to take steps towards that. Because the thing is, when we look at the story of Jonah, God doesn't ask Jonah to forgive the Ninevites. God doesn't ask Jonah to set aside all the hurts that they may have caused him or his people. Jonah is ask, or God is asking Jonah to let God be God. And it's when we let God be God when we let God be that merciful, loving, compassionate God that God is, that is when we start to see our lives and our hearts transformed as well. 
Because sometimes God's mercy looks like forgiving Nineveh. And sometimes it looks like grace towards us when we struggle to show mercy ourselves. So maybe if we are struggling to forgive, struggling to shake the Jonah that is in all of us, maybe we can move towards forgiveness this week by praying, God, I am really struggling to forgive. Or even, God, I'm struggling to even want to forgive. Help me to be a person who wants mercy and forgiveness. That is a powerful prayer, friends. Because when we come to God wanting to be transformed, wanting to be more like God, God is faithful to move within us and transform our hearts. We can be confident that the love and the mercy of God never fail. They are new every morning to the Ninevehs in our lives and to us as well. So friends, as we leave here today, I pray that we can all look at our own hearts and see the ways that we might be like Jonah the areas of our hearts where we can invite God to move and transform us so that we can be loving and merciful like our God has called us to be and like God is to us. Let's pray. Lord, I am overwhelmed by that Lamentations passage that was just put up. That your love and mercy and compassion every morning is renewed, God. When we stumble and fail in big ways, your mercy is new. When we just struggle to extend mercy to others, your mercy is new. Lord, I pray that you will convict and compel each of us today. Bring us face to face with our own thoughts of mercy, with with the kind of God that we want you to be. Challenge us, Lord, to understand your mercy and love and to live it out every day in our lives. It's in your powerful and tender name that we pray. Amen.